Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. We're a few weeks into this sermon series on half-truths and heresies, uh, where we've kind of just been exploring popular and what I would uh, what I'm going to insert in there is dangerous teaching that's kind of been uh, maybe uh, permeating the church. Um, we've been exposed. We've been uh, we've been examining the scriptures and we've really been seeking to expose these popular doctrines, these these kind of prevalent teachings that exist as false. That doesn't come from a place where we're just like, you know what, we want to be on this crazy like witch hunt and just kind of uh, passionate about telling everybody that they're wrong about something. But the heart from this really comes from a passage of scripture in uh, 2 Timothy. It was Paul's charge to Timothy. And so for the last number of weeks, we've been coming back to this. If you remember two weeks ago, I preached on the importance of the word of God, and I preached out of this passage, but uh, I feel like it's fitting this morning to start here again. And so uh, beginning in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, I'm going to read them. It says, I charge you, therefore, this is Paul charging Timothy, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom. Um, so this is important, that first verse, because we're going to talk a little bit about the judgment of God today, uh, which I know is like a heavy topic. It's not fun. It's not like the one that you kind of like, hey, come to my church. We're going to talk about God judging people, uh, right? That's, you know, judging people is not uh, a popular or well-accepted thing in uh, society at large today. But guess what? Uh, God's going to do it. <laughs> uh, he will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. goes on, it says, preach the word. Because he's going to come and judge, because there is real repercussion for actions in this life, Paul's charge to Timothy is this, preach the word. Not an opinion, not a good idea, not some kind of uh, fluffy philosophy, but preach the word of God. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Friends, my, my goal today, this morning, is to convince you. My goal is to rebuke you for wrong thinking. My goal is to encourage or exhort you to continue on in fighting the good fight. Those are things that are not like, you know, that's not really a, a great like TED talk, right? That's not really... Woo, make me feel good. No, this is the reason for the preaching of the word of God, what we do on a Sunday morning here. Um, and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Basically, people who will tell them what they want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. This is the heartbeat of why we're talking about the things that we're talking about. Um, it's not just a witch hunt. We're not just trying to expose bad theology without introducing good, sound, biblical doctrine as well. 
You know, last week, um, uh, it was a little out of the box for me. I really dug deep into some kind of sociology, and we, we, we introduced this term that sociologists have kind of been thrown around for the last 20 years or so, um, that describes a self-defined version of Christianity that many adhere to in the West. Um, it's called Moral Therapeutic Deism, MTD for short. It's not a disease. It's, uh, it's not a drug, right? We talked about that. It's, it's this sociological term uh, used to define a lot of what uh, passes for Christianity here, uh, specifically in America specifically uh, in the West as well. Um, we understand that much of what passes for Christianity today of, of people that consider themselves Christians is actually a self-centered belief system which with just kind of elements of Jesus sprinkled into it. It's not actual biblical deny yourself, take up your cross kind of Christianity that Jesus calls us to. It's this idea of, um, it's really a watered-down, self-help, self-pursuit religion that exists with Christianity sprinkled into the mix. Uh, we call it nominal Christianity or Christianity in name only. And so I would really encourage you, because I'm going to be pointing back to some of the things that we've talked about in previous weeks as we go on. Um, if you're not listening to our podcast, or if you don't know we have a podcast, we do have a website, opendoorpagosa.com. Uh, there you can find links to our teaching on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and those things. Um, but last week's on moral therapeutic deism is going to be kind of an integral part that we're going to be pointing back to as uh, we examine some of these other teachings. Does that make sense? And so I just want to encourage you guys, if you, uh, if you, would, uh, if you missed last week um, or you need a refresher at any time, uh, Adam does a great job uh, on Sundays making those available for us uh, online. And so thanks, man, for all your hard work there. Um, but one of the major kind of glaring issues, if you will, uh, with this moral therapeutic deism, this uh, this kind of religious thought system, this worldview that has really grasped the majority of our culture, especially those that would consider themselves to be Christians in some vein or form, is that God and the Bible no longer define what's right and wrong. We talked a little bit about that, about that last week. It's really, um, it's really what individuals or pop culture or Instagram or TikTok or insert kind of the, the next relevant thing, um, promote and perpetuate as good, that, that kind of becomes the guiding moral framework for the majority of people. Our culture uh, currently promotes inclus uh, inclusivity. I'm going to say this word a lot today, so I, I should practice it right now. Inclusivity. There we go. I can do it. Uh, <laughs> as this kind of somewhat of a moral pillar, right, in in defining what's good and what's bad, right? If it's inclusive, it's good. If it's exclusive, it's bad. Anything that is morally exclusive is evil and bigoted, right? The narrative has been pushed even farther, though. It's not only that uh, all have to be welcomed into something, all have to be included into something, but everyone also must be affirmed in their decisions as well. Otherwise, you become... 
an intolerant bigot. Now, now track with me here. This is, a, this is kind of the, the message and the notion of tolerance that exists within society at large, within our culture. I, you know, I, I got to be honest, I've probably lost track of how many times I've had people who, who are, I wouldn't consider to be serious followers of Jesus comment on how they despise organized religion, how they're frustrated with the church, but they really love the message of Jesus. And they'll go on to say something, you know, I just, I really love what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount and his message of peace and tolerance. And it always kind of leaves me scratching my head. Has anybody ever, ever encountered that? I, I can distinctly recount at least five within the last two or three years encounters with different people that have specifically used this language of Jesus being a tolerant individual um, and his message being one of tolerance. And you know, it's interesting when I ask about what Jesus said that promotes this kind of idea, um, I never really get a straightforward answer <laughs> because a lot of what Jesus said uh, is really not very tolerant in the definition of what culture kind of perpetuates as tolerance, right? He, he makes some pretty exclusive uh, claims about himself, right? Uh, John 14, 6, just for one, this is one that we'll kind of revisit today. But Jesus says this about himself. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, Jesus, that's not very tolerant. You can leave that up there for a second, right? Uh, that's not... That's not very inclusive. Like that, that sounds like a pretty exclusive group, a pretty exclusive club, right? That's not popular. That's not fun. That doesn't, you know, get you on the kind of the bandwagon, if you will. Um, Jesus, couldn't you be a little more inclusive? Uh, but no, he doesn't say Buddha is the way or there's a bunch of different ways. He makes this pretty exclusive claim that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except, that's an exclusive word there, right? <laughs> except through me. And see, while tolerance is kind of promoted as a virtue in our culture, we see the inverse of tolerance practiced by those who herald it most, right? <laughs> Today, if you're intolerant, uh, Today, you become intolerant if you suggest that sex should just be reserved for marriage between one man and one woman, right? That's, that's an intolerant thought, right? And all of a sudden, the people that are promoting tolerance fight back and say, oh, you can't, be, you can't hold those views, right? And that's where tolerance really breaks down, and it's not this idea of tolerance that they really want to per perpetuate. It's really this kind of mentality of relativism where everything, truth just becomes relative, and what's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you, and can't we just all agree? Um, but we understand that that breaks down. It doesn't actually sustain itself, and uh, tolerance is kind of this thing that just isn't ever going to exist in the way that people want it to. But we get labeled intolerant if we believe marriage is just between a man and a woman, uh, we, we, we become intolerant if we refuse to acknowledge all 72 other, so 74 genders that uh, are described. I looked this up this morning, you know, because I was just going to throw out a number. 
I was just going to throw out a, a lot of different genders, but there are 72 specific gender identities other than male and female that are reserved by the science or that are observed by the scientific community right now. 72. I, I there's a there's a lot that goes on to that. We're actually going to talk about uh, uh, the church's role in sexuality and the church's role in uh, gender identity coming up here as part of this sermon series, which I'm excited to have that discussion because I think it's interesting. I think there's a lot of people that have been hurt by the church's response in years past, and I think there's a lot of confusion on what our role should be right now, and I think Scripture's pretty abundantly clear on some pretty black and white issues. Um, anyway, we're going to talk about it because it's... it's it's important. Anyway, but yeah, uh, there, there's 70. This is what, uh, this is the list that I could find from like the legitimate source. Like, uh, I, I say legitimate. You get what I'm saying here. Uh, <laughs> but you're intolerant if you refuse to acknowledge all of those other different gender identities. You become intolerant if you believe that Jesus is the only way to God, and by societal norms, that is a bad thing, right? We get labeled as Christians if we hold to these kind of scriptural viewpoints as there's something wrong with us. And now, that shouldn't be shocking to us because Jesus said the world would hate us, right? Uh, we're, we're, not in, we're, we're not Christians because it's popular. I think where we've kind of had this disconnect within culture and within society is that we had this false illusion at one point in time that to follow Jesus was supposed to be the popular thing. And I hate to break it to you, Jesus himself uh, made it pretty clear that uh, it's never going to be popular to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. That's always going to be countercultural. I think it's important to understand that. But when I, when I start talking like this and I say that Jesus didn't promote a message of tolerance, I I don't mean, uh, I mean, he's not promoting, Jesus is not promoting what culture is implying when they speak of tolerance. But Jesus did, in fact, mention tolerance uh, a handful of times. But every time that I encounter Jesus' message regarding tolerance, it was to not tolerate something. I, I think it's interesting if you, if you read the, the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2, the churches are instructed there. They're either applauded in one sense because they didn't tolerate wicked and evil practices, right? They didn't practice the, the, the Nicolaitans or anything there. Or if you even go down and read at the end of chapter 2 in Revelation chapter 2 to uh, Jesus' message to the church in Thyatira, he says, you tolerate this woman Jezebel. Meaning, you allow her to teach and she's leading your people astray. And I think the church has to take a firm stance on this. If we look at Jesus' word to the church in Thyatira, that we do not tolerate false teachers. We do not tolerate false doctrine because what it does, it inevitably, however harmless it might seem on the surface, will lead people into sin. And Jesus takes this very seriously regarding his church. And so the instruction that Jesus has is kind of uh, counterintuitive to this uh, message of peace, love, and tolerance, right? That everybody kind of has this image of Jesus preaching. And it's in reality uh, 
Jesus is saying, no, don't tolerate sin. Don't tolerate wickedness. But when he's speaking of it, it it's aimed at the church. It's aimed at his people. Anyway, I, I think there's a lot to unpack there, a lot to, to dig up. But I think it coincides with 2 Timothy 4.3, what we talked about just a, a few minutes ago. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They will not tolerate sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, what they want, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. You see, the current cultural attitude, you know, that we should not be judgmental of any religion or, or people or person, right? Or any idea. I believe this has given resurgence to an unsound doctrine that we're going to talk about today known as universalism. How many of you guys have heard this word thrown around, universalism? Um, it may be new to you. You may be familiar with it. But it's a doctrine that teaches that eventually all people will be saved. It goes beyond uh, in certain thoughts of universalism. It goes beyond just the idea that all people will be saved, but all created beings with a will. In fact, it even goes, uh, some, some branches of universalist thought go to, well, if God created it, then it has to be good, and he's going to redeem all things. So therefore, fallen angels are going to be redeemed. Therefore, Satan himself is going to be redeemed at the end of the age. And it, it, it goes on to this uh, long kind of unwinding, unraveling road where uh, I believe is not just wrong, but it's dangerous, it's heretical, and it's something that the church needs to be on guard about. And so when we're talking about universalism here today, we're going to bring some definition to it. We're going to examine it from a scriptural point of view. And I really, I really want you to, to connect with my heart on this, on how dangerous of a thought this is. Um, I think it was 2011. Um, it was right after I had uh, graduated from ministry school, and so I wasn't able to really be like a, a part of this like hot topic that evidently was like twin trending on Twitter or whatnot. I was a little disconnected. I think I had just moved to Pagosa and was like concentrated on like loving teenagers and like doing youth ministry. But I guess there was this controversial controversial book that had come out by Rob Bell called Love Wins. How many of you guys? Uh, we're around, you've heard this book title, you've maybe are around for part of this conversation. Well, I really want to really give, this, is, this sums up, uh, this is a self-described uh, summary from his book, pulled from his book, talking about um, his kind of perspective. Now, he wouldn't call it universalism. In fact, he came out and said, you know, I'm not a universalist, but what he describes here uh, really points to uh, is a pretty clear-cut definition of universalism, so we're going to use it and talk about it. Um, but Rob Bell writes this when he's defending the doctrine. He says, At the heart of this perspective is the belief that given enough time, everybody will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. He goes on to say that the love of God will melt every human heart, and even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. Now, some of you are like, well, that's crazy. That's wacky. Um, I, I want to be clear. I, I think I, I don't want to just label everybody that holds to a position of universalism and be like, wow, you're so stupid. Like, you're just dumb. Don't you know the Bible? 
Um, because honestly, this, while this was kind of a, a popular conversation in 2011 when the book came out, um, throughout church history, there have been offshoots of this line of thinking. Um, there have been proponents of universalism all the way back to, um, you know, the first century church. And so I, I don't necessarily want to play that card or that game. But what I do want to do is briefly look at some of the reasoning for this. But more importantly than any of that, I really want to talk about why from Scripture we can hold a, a biblical view of judgment, how we can hold a biblical view of the righteousness of God that uh, is very much in contrast with this statement. Because here, guys, uh, I just want you to track with me. The thinking behind this is that uh, people like Hitler and Stalin and, and the, the young man that shot up a school not too long ago, these people are also going to be redeemed and eventually, as the worst sinners, come back um, and, you know, be in heaven. I just want you to think of the ramifications of this. And I'm not just, I'm not just saying that to, like, trivialize sin or anything, that, that, you know, what, we all deserve heaven or something, or that it's based upon our morality. It's not. But the reality of it is, um, when we see this, we see the justice of God mocked. And I really want to, to talk about that in just a moment. It's this particular doctrine of universal salvation that, that sparked this sermon series where it really kind of said, you know what, we're going to talk about this and we're going to finally do it. Uh, because I think it was like four or five years ago, we were talking about how we were going to tackle different heresies and half-truths and misconceptions in the church and things that sound right but just are kind of a little bit off, which wind up being way off when you get down the road. Um, and we, we were running through ideas and running through talks and um, but it's this particular doctrine here that has startled me to the core because I've seen and I've heard and I've had conversations with numerous people that I, I would have considered to be firm in their faith, um, having a, a good understanding and respect for the scriptures. Um, in conversation with them, some form of universalist thought has come out of those conversations and and, wind, and really figuring out for myself that uh, this is a more popular and widespread belief than I had ever given it credit to. Um, I'm a pretty simple guy. I'm a pretty black and white guy. I try to read the scripture and see what the scripture says. And so for me, it, it seemed like a big jump to get to um, a thought of universal salvation. But... Um, I just want you to understand my heart um, because I, I think it's pretty crazy. Uh, I'm willing to make, I'll, I'll say this, I'm willing to make uh, room for theological differences in a lot of areas. Um, and I, I, I think we ought to make every effort to understand Scripture and understand it fully and bring it before the Lord. I think we need to do our due diligence like the Bereans and really study the word of God. I really think that we can be good students of the word and that there are answers to be found in there. But I'm not willing to pretend like I have it all figured out either. I, 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 have, to, I, I have to be honest. I stand here before you today and there are, there are things that I thought I would never budge on as a teenager when it came to my theology after being a student of the word for a number of years. 
and after having experience. There are some perspectives that I have differently now that I did as a young man who was fervent and fiery and just thought I could not be wrong. I, could you guys believe that? I, I'm capable of being wrong? Don't tell my wife. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> she, I think it's... She, <laughs> I really wish that that could have been picked up on the microphone for whoever was lifting on the podcast. Can you whisper? Can you just whisper that? Overdub it? Um, I'm sorry, guys. But guys, there, there are areas of theology where we have to take a firm stance. There are important aspects of scripture where we have to draw a line in the sand and say, no, this is a non-negotiable. This is important. Uh, we have to take a strong stance on the authority of scripture, the deity of Christ, these things that are these things that need to be immovable. And I believe what we're talking about today, the salvation of mankind, <laughs> what Jesus did on the cross is of utmost importance, and it's not something to be trivialized. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not just something to be blinked at. Well, they think that and they they're different. We just have these differing opinions. I strongly am concerned about the number of brothers and sisters that I have that are being led down this road of thought that I believe has dangerous implications. How many of you guys in here are familiar with the Unitarian Universalist Church? Many of you might have heard about that in terms of, I don't want to confuse what I'm talking about universalism, because what we're talking about today is Christian universalism. But there is this, uh, there is this kind of... Uh, there is this movement, uh, the Unitarian Universalists, which actually started off Christian. Could, did you believe that? Um, it, it didn't start off as uh, just the Universalist, uh, Unitarian Universalist Church. Um, but I, for those of you that are unfamiliar, the Unitarian Universalist Church um, comprises its beliefs uh, very widely um, they can include, but they're not limited to, humanism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Sikhism, Buddhism, Taoism, ism, 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 neo-paganism, atheism, agnosticism, pantheism, panatheism. I don't know what a lot of these isms are. Pandeism, deisms, or the teachings of the Baha'i faith. Uh, this is a new one. I saw this one in our paper recently. How many of you guys uh, read our paper? Have you guys seen that there's like a Baha'i intercultural faith center or something like that? Baha'i. See, I don't know. I'm not trying to be the expert on this. What I do know is that basically it's summed up in that, uh, that, that bumper sticker that coexist. It's that all religions are basically right. All, all religions, all forms of thought are essentially good and okay, and we're going to practice them all. I remember... Uh, I had a friend invite me to church before I was a follower of Jesus. Uh, there was a concert going on in Pueblo, Colorado at the Unitarian Universalist Church. And I remember, okay, yeah, I'll go to your church, whatever. Uh, and was just completely confused as a young man that was not following Jesus. But they had uh, Hindu statues and a cross on the platform. And there were, uh, there were just, uh, there was like a menorah over here. And uh, it was just a little bit of everything. And even as a young man, I, I understood that, you know, it just doesn't make sense. I've had, a, I've had a, a parody of that bumper sticker 
that coexist bumper sticker for a number of years that says contradict instead. And it says they can't all be right. And uh, I really believe this is where tolerance and relativism breaks down because at some point in time, we have to understand that there is truth that is ultimately true. And that there is real right and wrong. Amen? <laughs> but I, I, I make the distinction here because uh, Christian universalists would argue that they still believe in Jesus. They believe in his work on the cross. They would agree with John 14, 6, that the only way to the Father is through Jesus himself. They would, they would agree with that. And we're like, okay, there's some common ground there. But I want you to understand that it's a slippery slope. Uh, just an example there, the Unitarian Universalists that now hold to all roads lead to heaven um, started as Christian Universalists that believe all people will get to heaven, but they have to go through Jesus first. And you see where this kind of messy thing breaks down is uh, that it really isn't, there isn't a big difference between the two. I say that, I want to make the distinction because they would make the distinction, but at the end of the day, if everybody gets saved, if they get saved by saying yes to Jesus here now, or if they serve Buddha or Allah their whole life, and they just say yes to Jesus at some point even after they die, uh, and they all wind up in heaven, that's a, that's a, there's no difference. And uh, yeah, okay. Within the realm of universalism, there are a number of conflicting and diverse branches of thought, and I cannot thoroughly expound on all of them given our time together this morning, but at the crux of universalist thought is this, that all will eventually be saved. That's, the, that's kind of the disclaimer. That's what I'm laying out there for. I want, to be, I want to be honest and open with you guys. If this is something that you've struggled with, these are, these are concepts that that maybe you would say, you know what, I entertain these, or that's actually what I believe. I do want to encourage you. My office is open. That phone number is open. I want to be able to talk more about this. But I, I was telling Adam, I was a little convict, uh, convicted this morning, and I actually took out a bunch out of my sermon because I, I realized I did more explaining universalism than I did actually just giving a sound biblical perspective of why it's not okay. And so if you have questions or thoughts about this, I have a two-volume book that kind of walks throughout uh, all of church history. Uh, it was expensive. It was like 90 bucks. It's like the most expensive book I bought. I didn't go to college, like a traditional college, so I guess I shouldn't complain. It's like a college textbook. So I guess $90 for a college textbook is probably pretty good. Uh, it's, like a, it's, like a, it's like a good deal. Anyway, um, it's really interesting. Uh, it's called The Devil's Redemption. <laughs> It's pretty fascinating, uh, but it outlines a universalist thought throughout all this stuff. Anyway, all will be saved is the viewpoint of Christian universalism. And I, I'm just, I'm giving you an example. I'm not trying to pretend to just give the whole crux and framework of everything that they believe. But I believe it stemmed um, from poor, inter poor interpretations of a few passages of Scripture we look at Philippians 2.10. These are the two uh, passages of scripture that uh, I encountered when I was having conversation with people where they kind of told me about their universalist thoughts. Uh, one was Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of our Father. They would take that to mean that, yes, one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and they'll connect that with what we read in Acts, that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Therefore, everyone will be saved. Uh, and then uh, we're not going to do, we're, I'm not going to just break down all that's wrong with that thought, but the other one that I encountered was 1 Timothy uh, 2, 4 through 6. And if you remember, Paul's writing to Timothy here about, he, he, Paul's writing to Timothy in both of his epistles to Timothy about being on guard against false doctrine. So I just think it's interesting. But 1 Timothy 2, 4 through 6 says that it's God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, uh, and that is Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Uh, to be testified in due time. They take this to mean, well, if God wants all, right? He desires all men to be saved. Therefore, God gets what God wants and all will come to salvation. I'm trying to give the, the basis of their argument there. The problem with this, and I, I could kind of say, I could break down about how, uh, you know, uh, just everybody confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord removes the faith equation or or all these different things, or if we look at God desiring all men to be saved, we understand that he doesn't always get what he wants when we look out through the whole narrative of Scripture. That's not exactly how the sovereignty of God works. We could look here and say that, yes, he gave himself as a ransom for all, but that doesn't mean all actually partake of that. Uh, we, we could break this down and, and go a bunch of different directions if we really just wanted to combat this. My biggest issue with Christian universalism, that is, it has, you have to do some serious somersaults over the rest of what Jesus had to say in the New Testament. You have to really kind of disregard the rest of Scripture to get on board with this. And that is my heart as a pastor, is that we wouldn't dispel, uh, that we wouldn't dispel Scripture in favor of a viewpoint that just is easier to swallow. You see, the thought of everyone going to heaven and no one going to hell is, is very pretty. It's desirable on the surface, but to embrace it, you have to reject the majority of Scripture on the matter. And I believe that the rise of universalism as an accepted teaching has come from man's inability to reconcile a loving God with the thought of people going to hell. Honestly, how many of you in this room have struggled with that understanding, that concept of God is love and there are people that are going to hell. Anybody? I, I have. So you're in good company if, if, that's, if that's something that you've ever wrestled with. I think it's important to wrestle with questions like this. But with man's inability to actually come to a solid conclusion here without, without actually giving it enough thought and allowing the Spirit of God to really uh, proclaim truth in this situation, we wind up at kind of a substitution at best where we say, well, uh, if God is love and he's good and we like him and we like the way that he makes us feel, then hell must actually not be real. Or it must not actually be as bad as Jesus said that it was. Or, you know, at the end of the day, everybody's going to get saved and nobody's actually going to go there. 
There's all kinds of different uh, layers that people believe in terms of Christian universalism, but they're all scary because they disregard what Jesus said in the scriptures. And I, I, think, I think a big player to this is that we, we fail to neglect that we struggle to reconcile these things because we feel like God is just exclusively defined as love. When we talk about God is love, yes, he's fully, 100%. He is the definition of love itself, but he's not just exclusively love. We see scripture defining him as just, as righteous, as holy as well, do we not? And I think that this is where we see an important aspect of the character and nature of God is that he's not just love. He's not just mercy. If, if we just defined him as mercy, then yes, a merciful God is, is probably, if that was our sole definition of him, um, you know, yeah, no, we're not, we're not going to get what we do deserve. But we know that there's more to his character, there's more to his nature based upon what we see in his word. And I see Jesus being the loving father. I, I, I see God being the loving father as well as the rightful judge. And he's the only one perfectly capable to do such a thing in terms of judge us rightly. We think about hell. I want you to think about this. We think about hell as being this terrible place. And a lot of our objections to, our objections to a God that is good being uh, punishing uh, mankind that rebel against him to a place of suffering uh, come from, comes from this idea that, you know what, we can't actually do that much bad to deserve something as terrible as hell, right? And if God is so loving, then his love is going to trump that. But what we do is we diminish our view of God and we actually begin to say that our sin is not that big of a deal. Our sin is actually not as bad as it actually is. And we, we try to judge it in, in quantity of how much wrong we've done rather than in actually how bad it actually is. Because if God is perfect, right, immeasurably perfect, infallibly perfect, when we, when we talk about how good he actually is, to transgress, to sin against a God as good as that, would proportionally make our sin as bad as God is good. That's, that's I'm, I'm, I'm trying to break this down as simply as possible. And we really begin to see that the weight of our sin is this heavy, terrible, weighty thing. And it's not just a matter of not God being unloving. God is also just. To embrace this kind of theology, to embrace this kind of thought process, we have to, we have to circumnavigate a lot of what Jesus talks on, on heaven and hell. Because he speaks of them as being some fairly exclusive things. Uh, very quickly, um, I'm going to kind of re, rephrase these things. I'm sorry, Tina. I'm so thankful that you've jumped back there <laughs> and are serving uh, with our media. 
but I'm going to not follow my notes quite like I was planning on. The thought that everyone is eventually saved, I believe, is dangerous and blasphemous. It, it's dangerous because it circumvents hell and it promises, it promises, it promises heaven. And this is obviously the ramifications of that. If there is a real hell and if there is real qualification for going to heaven, then it serves as this kind of bandage for people and gives them a false sense of security to live however they want to live, to do whatever they want to do. It completely undermines any kind of urgency in Christian work that, that Jesus would compel us to do. It really diminishes everything in that sense. It removes the need to place faith in Jesus. It counteracts Acts 4, chapter, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where we see that salvation is not found in any other. There's no under, other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. It disregards faith. It completely removes faith from the equation. In fact, uh, a popular thought among, um, among universalists is that, well, you get a second chance sometime after you die. In fact, the question was posed to me, where does it say in Scripture that you need to embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior this side of eternity? Why can't it just happen after you're dead? And that this, is, this is an honest um, thought process that a lot of Christian universalists hold to because you really do have to make some jumps to get there. And the reality, my simple response to that is, is it removes faith out of the equation. Obviously, if you die, and, and, and some, some branches of universalism believe in like a purgatory-ish state of hell, if you were to die and to go to hell and say, all you have to do is believe in Jesus, and then you can get back in, who's not going to believe in that, right? I'm here. I've seen God. This has happened. Uh, that removes the aspect of faith from the equation, right? That's what Ephesians 2.8 that we read during worship tells us, right? That we've been saved through faith, right? Uh, we go on and we talk about faith. Uh, Hebrews 11 tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God because whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, um, right? Uh, we read uh, Romans 1 uh, where it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Belief, that's a big thing. It's the power of salvation for those who believe. Not for those who just exist, but for those who believe. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for it is the righteousness of God. Uh, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I believe it's dangerous. I believe it takes out any kind of unction for us to preach the gospel. Because why? Why would we preach the gospel to the ends of the earth? Why would we send missionaries? Why would we, engage, why would we waste our time if at the end it really wasn't going to make a difference? It, it doesn't add up and it trivializes. And on the surface, I know that there's arguments, well, no, that, that, that the motivation has to be different. But when you boil it down at the end of the day, that is where we arrive to. I believe it's dangerous because it minimizes and trivializes sin. 
any and all universalistic teaching, uh, we see sin becoming not that big of a deal. And I believe uh, that in that essence, it becomes blasphemous because it makes little of what Jesus did on the cross. If, if everybody is saved at the end, if, if sin really is of no consequence, whether you sin in this life or not, because at some point in time, given enough time, whether it be in this age or in the next, you're going to come to, uh, you're going to, come to salvation, then all of a sudden what Jesus did on the cross was not that big of a deal. It really didn't matter. I could tell you here, uh, Hebrews 9.27, I think that might have been in my notes. But 9.27 and, and 28 from the author of Hebrews, he tells us that it's appointed under man to die once. But after this, the judgment. Wow, okay. So we're to die, and then after that comes judgment. We, we, we read about this in Revelation we read about the great white throne judgment, um, which I might read here still. Um, but so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. I fear that universalism, friends, teaches kind of a John 3.16 but they, they treat it like the abridged version of John 3.16, a John 3.16 light, if you will. That God loved, so all will have everlasting life. Right? Oh. I didn't put that one in there because it's not a real scripture. It's amazing what happens when you ignore certain words, right? The whole meaning and context gets changed. But if we read John 3.16 in context, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes, not whoever, but whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We go on in this, this idea of belief, and I preached on it not too long ago. But John 3, uh, I'm going to read uh, 3.36 here. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. What I see here is scripture defining people into two categories, those who believe and those who don't. If you, if you, really, if you really want to get down to the nitty-gritty, you, uh, you could read what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 25, um, verses 31 through 46. Uh, we see God coming in his glory with all of his holy angels. And he says that he's going to gather the nations before him and he'll separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And it's crazy. And I, I preached on this a number of, 
a while back when I talked about belief, belief being more than just thinking something, but it actually encompasses action because this parable that Jesus uses here in Matthew chapter 25, it actually really goes back to what you did or didn't do with what you said you believe. Um, But he separates people between the sheep and the goats, those who did his will and those who did not, those who believed and acted and those who did not. And we see at the very end, verse 46. If you just want to put verse 46 up there on there, Tina. And this is, uh, this is Matthew 25. He, he makes a clear distinction that these will go away into everlasting punishment. This is what he's talking about, the goats. But the righteous into eternal life. He makes a clear distinction between two individuals. Two groups of people. Not 72 different variations that we can fall into. And maybe I'm too simple. I don't know. But when I read the scriptures and I hear what Jesus says, I see two examples. (laughs) Either you believe or you don't. And either you enter into eternal life or eternal punishment. And I've realized, friends, this is not the popular message. I know this isn't like, woo, I want to go to that church, listen to that pastor, preach about all this stuff that's just mean and scary and not fun. But reality is, I can't change what Jesus said. And I'm not willing to. And even though the culture would demand that I do so, these are the words of him who sits on the throne who is the rightful judge, who isn't bent by our kind of uh, display of what we think is right and what we think is wrong. He is righteous and just in all of his decrees. He says this. uh, uh, Let's go to Jesus' death on the cross. Is that that okay with you guys? If we we look at, at Luke 23, beginning in verse 32, it says, there were also two others. There were two criminals that led that were led with Jesus to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, they were crucif- where they, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed, or who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Mockingly, he says this. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus responds to one of these two thieves on the cross with the promise that he would be with him in paradise. 
He does not have that same response for the other thief. And I don't, I don't know about you today. You know, we can be done talking about universalism and the fact that I, I think it's fairly clear that I do not believe that all will be saved. Jesus said that narrow is the path, right? Narrow is the gate. Few will find it. Wide is the road and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many, many will find that. But he says narrow is the way to life. I, I don't believe that all will be safe, but my, my encouragement is that maybe someone here today, one of you, maybe you've placed your, your hope in the fact that, you know, Jesus is love, God is love, and, you know, when you die, he's going to just say, hey, you were a good person, and let you in. And I, I, as a pastor as a follower of Jesus, as a student of the word, I can't in good conscience let you hold on to that hope because I believe it's false security. I believe Jesus is pretty abundantly clear that we need to place our faith and our hope in him and him alone. And the promise is good. The promise is life eternal. I have a lot more about this subject that I could talk about, that I'd be actually eager to sit down and have conversations with people about if this has piqued any kind of interest. I know that it's not the, the easiest. A sermon is not always the easiest medium to really tackle theological things like this. But I do believe it is my responsibility as a pastor to make sure that we're not embracing theology or allowing doctrine to exist that is harmful and detrimental to the mission of the church and what God has called us to. I can't in good conscience let people sleep in a false comfort that everything's going to be okay because Jesus never spoke like that. And the scriptures warn us that there is an urgent fight to be had, that real souls are in danger, that eternity is at hand. When I was a young man, and I'm, I'm closing with this, uh, I remember getting in trouble quite a bit. Any of you guys ever get in trouble? You guys ever do anything wrong? Repercussions. And I, I remember sitting down and thinking, well, really, how bad is this going to be? I remember, uh, I remember breaking a computer one year in high school and thinking, like, the worst of repercussion here is, you know what, I might have to pay a couple hundred dollars or something like that. that. That's really the extent that this is going to be. And I would think if I, I, if I thought about different things that I had did wrong, if the truth were to come out, like how, how far down this road could we go? And really the extent of the repercussion of that action. And I, I remember distinctly thinking one time, I was like, yeah, I really messed up here. And, uh, you know, I, I've really done something wrong. And my parents, even though they're not great, they're going to be really upset, but they're not going to kill me. So it's not that bad, right? Did anybody ever have those kind of thoughts? Okay, well, that, those were my thoughts as a young man. And I would think about, well, at the end of the day, the ramification of this is this. And I, I was kind of logical when I was 
thinking about those things. And I, I just want to encourage you, friends, the ramification of getting this wrong, the consequence of missing out on the person of Jesus, the Son of God, is not, it's not just the extent of, oh man, this is bad. This isn't the ideal situation. It has an eternal consequence that I cannot over-describe the weight of its importance. Does that make sense? So my prayer for you, my prayer for us today, is that we would take Jesus seriously, that we take him at his word, and that we would embrace his extension of salvation. Um, we would do that we would do so willingly, receptively. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.